This is 89.9 WWNO. I'm Janae Pierre, and it's time for All Things New Orleans. On today's show, Jess Clark chats with author Walter Stern about his new book, Race and Education in New Orleans. Then we'll take a look at the medical marijuana program in Texas. And later, Jessica Rosegard checks in with Cityscape's columnist, Richard Campanella. And you may want to stick around for a special announcement at the end of the show. That's all coming up on All Things New Orleans. Stay with us. New Orleans' public education system has been a focal point for the national school reform movement since Hurricane Katrina. School reformers often point to the problems in the school system before Hurricane Katrina, financial mismanagement, corruption, and abysmal graduation rates. But one education researcher has recently written a book taking a longer view. New Orleans native and University of Wisconsin-Madison professor Walter C. Stern went all the way back to the mid-1700s. His book, Race and Education in New Orleans, is the history of how New Orleans schools were used to funnel the city's limited resources to white residents for more than 200 years. It's also the story of how black residents have fought tirelessly for educational equality. Stern spoke with WWNO education reporter Jess Clark. Walter Stern, welcome. Thanks for having me. So school segregation today is often talked about as a product of housing segregation. But in this book, you actually turn that argument on its head and you say really it's the opposite, that schools were used to create segregated communities. Can you talk about how that worked? Yeah, so one of the larger points I make in the book is that schools really became urban planning and economic planning tools. New Orleans like just about every city, major city across the country, um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, was relatively residentially integrated. In New Orleans, that was particularly because there was just so little dry land for people to live on. By necessity, black and whites had to live next to each other. And schools became really critical vehicles for creating segregated neighborhoods. Over the course of the 20th century, school board officials would often locate white schools in areas that had not yet been developed, essentially marking them for white settlement. And concurrent with that, um, officials concentrated black schools in often the oldest, most neglected neighborhoods in areas where there were uh, pockets of of, of black population. And this was happening at both the policy level in school board meetings, but also at the grassroots level with white residents in racially mixed neighborhoods uh, opposing and often violently opposing the location of, of black schools near their homes. What was the benefit for uh, white people in creating these segregated communities? So th- there were there were several benefits, and one one that I emphasize uh, in, in the book was that there was a real economic benefit. The resources and and protections that followed the creation of of white schools meant that the surrounding houses increased in property value. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with black neighborhoods, and often identified as as such because they had black schools, with those neighborhoods really being starved of resources, um, property values did not increase or even decline. And so there were really, um, this created 
obstacles that we still see today in terms of uh, persistent wealth gaps between white people and African-American people, particularly since owning a home is often the greatest source of a person's wealth. Something that struck me as I was reading this book was that the progress black New Orleanians made towards educational equality wasn't linear. No, that's, that's a really important point. I think we often tend to think of history that things were bad in the past and they slowly got better. Um, but really, if we're looking at the history of race in the United States, looking at the history of race um, in, in New Orleans or race and education in particular, they're really peaks and, and, and valleys. Right. Like in the I was surprised to, to read that in, in the 1870s, schools were essentially integrated in New Orleans in the 1870s. Yeah, it, it, that's a um, something as someone who grew up in New Orleans. I was kind of shocked that I didn't uh, learn that about the city and it took me going to graduate school to, to learn that. But yeah, during Reconstruction, about one third of the public schools were racially integrated. Those integrated schools were fairly widely considered to be the best in the city. And the reason that the schools desegregated was largely because of the black community in New Orleans, their attachment to egalitarian ideals, often which were uh, drawn from revolutionary traditions in Haiti and in France and to these broader ideals of, of equality. And they acted upon them, and, and, and education was one of the key fronts in which they pursued this really expansive vision of democracy. So New Orleans has gone all in on school choice since Katrina. Next year, all but one of the district's 80-plus public schools will be charter schools. But near the end of the book, you really take school choice to task. Why, in your opinion, is school choice an inadequate remedy for the plight of education in New Orleans? So one thing I wanted to do in the, the, the book was to look at the, the roots of educational disparities uh, and racial disparities in the city. And as I was doing the, the research, I kept on going further and further back into the past because I found that the roots of these disparities were so deep and were so entangled into housing policy, into the nature of real estate, into the broader role of government, not just over decades, but really over centuries. And with choice, uh, you know, the way I frame it in the book, if, if we're holding up choice against the measure of trying to truly address but also redress this, this past discrimination and the development of uh, starkly segregated and unequal areas and unequal allocation of, of resources, it's just not up to the task. Charter schools, in, in part, are premised on this idea that if a student is coming from an area that does not have a, a high-quality school, does not have a lot of resources, charter schools or, or sort of choice more broadly, allows a student to, to leave that area and school for a better one. And in doing that, you're essentially accepting segregation and stark disparities between sections of the city as a given. Mm-hmm. And so my hope in exposing just how deeply rooted racial disparity is in the city, how long white supremacy and unequal allocation of resources developed over time and how much effort it took to do that. Uh, I'm hoping to sort of issue a call that we need to think about bolder solutions um, that are increasing educational opportunity, but also addressing things like housing and jobs and thinking more holistically about these solutions. Walter Stern, thank you. Thank you so much. Walter Stern is Assistant Professor of Educational Policy Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His new book is Race and Education in New Orleans. I'm Jess Clark.
Louisiana is preparing to legalize medical marijuana this summer, and it's been quite the challenge to make that happen, which leads to the question, what do medical marijuana programs look like in other states? Here to help us with that answer is CEO of Compassionate Cultivation, Morris Denton. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you. So Compassionate Cultivation recently made history as the first medical dispensary in Texas. Tell us a bit more about your company and what kinds of patients you serve. Well, we are a, uh, we're, we're a company that's based uh, in Austin, Texas. We are one of three licensees in the state of Texas, and we were the first to open a retail dispensary in the state on February 8th. Per regulations in Texas, we have a vertically integrated license. And so what that basically means is is that we have to do everything from seed all the way through to sale under one roof. And so in our facility, we cultivate plants. We grow several strains of cannabis that produces a, a plant that's low in THC and high in CBD. We cultivate, then we harvest that plant. We dry the plant out. We take it through an extraction process that then yields the very highly viscous crude oil that mm-hmm. serves as the basis for our end product. Mm-hmm. We then take that oil through multiple refining stages to produce an end product that is low in THC and high in CBD. Per regulations, we're only allowed to produce medicine that contains no more than 0.5% by weight THC and no less than 10% by weight CBD. Uh, and there's one condition in Texas that qualifies, and that's intractable epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And so we serve uh, the entirety of the state of Texas from our one facility. And so that means that we produce everything there, and if our patients come to our dispensary, we can serve the medicine to them there. They have to have a prescription. And if they are unwilling or unable, uh, then we deliver the medicine to their door. Let's go back for a second and talk about the differences between THC and CBD. Sure. So they're both cannabinoids, right? And uh, a plant, a cannabis plant, produces several hundred different types of cannabinoids. And the most well-known and popular cannabinoids are THC and CBD. THC is the cannabinoid that creates the psychoactive effect. It's the cannabinoid that that makes you feel high, Mm -hmm. right? And then CBD is cannabidiol. And cannabidiol has a completely different set of compounds associated with it that delivers tremendous wellness benefits. And it's proven to have medical impact on people with a variety of different neurological conditions. And clearly the one in Texas that we're able to serve is people with intractable epilepsy. And that's not just epilepsy. Let's talk about that. It's two different groups, right? Well, you can have epilepsy and only have one seizure in your entire life. Mm but still have epilepsy. But what intractable means is that you have more than one seizure a year. And so it's, it's in effect, uncontrollable epilepsy. Your medical cannabis firm recently launched a new program for folks suffering from epilepsy. Tell us about that. You know, one of the things that we wanted to do is, you know, you know this medicine is not covered by insurance. And as a result, you have to pay out of pocket. And the reality of that impact is that there are a lot of people in the state of Texas that can't afford this medicine. And even though this medicine, on a purely objective basis, the cost of this medicine is extraordinarily low when compared to other epilepsy drugs, when you look at the price of those epilepsy drugs, you know, the difference is shocking. If you look at all these anti-seizure medications, mm-hmm. they're, they're extraordinarily expensive. But the difference is, is that they're covered by insurance. 
So for the out-of-pocket expense for a mom that has a daughter with epilepsy who's on Onsay and a few other medications, well, it's 20 bucks every time she goes. However, with our medication, because it's not covered by insurance, that same mom might have to pay us $140 for a month's supply. And so we partnered with the Epilepsy Foundation of Texas. We created a program where we funded $10,000 of seed capital put into these accounts. Those accounts then will be directed and then managed by the Epilepsy Foundation where people can come in and apply and demonstrate a financial disadvantage and then get either their medicine covered in its entirety or subsidized based upon their, uh, their ability to demonstrate financial need. Let's talk about how important it is to include folks suffering from other conditions like PTSD and Parkinson's disease. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, like we talked about before, the importance of science and research to Mm -hmm. prove the efficacy of this medicine. And CBD has had a tremendous impact on a variety of neurological conditions. Each of us possesses what's known as an endocannabinoid system, which if you think about it, is kind of a series of neurological connectors on a pathway, right? Think of these toggles that are kind of aligned within that endocannabinoid system. So if you're fortunate and you're healthy, then those, those toggles or those switches are kind of lined up in the right form and fashion, but maybe one of those toggles is off and therefore you have, you suffer from a neurological condition like Parkinson's or MS or epilepsy or what have you. Well, in a very kind of rudimentary example, a cannabinoid can affect that endocannabinoid system. And so with the right kind of cannabis-based medicine, you may be able to change that profile of that toggle so that it eliminates or reduces seizures. Maybe it reduces spasticity. Mm -hmm. And so we're just starting to see a lot of science, true science being done on the endocannabinoid system and the impact that cannabinoids have on it. But there's proven science that's out there that says it has a positive impact on a variety of neurological conditions, MS, Parkinson's, autism, Alzheimer's. PTSD, etc. So we want to see people with these different conditions that deserve access to this kind of medicine to be able to get access to this medicine. You know, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, you know, what's next for medical pot in Texas? I mean, as you mentioned earlier, you're only treating that epileptic community. Right. Well, you know, the way you make progress in a conservative state is one step at a time. And what we have to be able to do in Texas is to give our legislators something to say yes to instead of something that they can easily reject. And when you start with reasonable, logical progress, that creates momentum over time. If we come at the legislature and say, hey, we want recreational and we want full medical and it's going to be high in THC, in Texas, the legislature, that locks them up. You know, that's not going to happen. But if we come at them from a logical, reasonable point of view, then I think we're giving them something to say yes to. And I think we have to be reasonable about, you know, the time frame by which we want to see broad access. That was Morris Denton, CEO of Compassionate Cultivation, Texas's first medical dispensary. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Richard Campanella, geographer with the Tulane School of Architecture and columnist for NOLA.com, The Times Picayune, enjoys historic photography in his spare time. He even wrote a book, New Orleans Then and Now, which places century-old photographs next to modern-day pictures of the same location. But Campanella recently came across a photo that he couldn't place. He sat down with WWNO's Jessica Rosegard to talk about how he solved the mystery. 
an image by William Henry Jackson was particularly intriguing to you. Tell me a bit about Jackson and what about this image caught your eye? William Henry Jackson was a Rocky Mountain photographer in the 1870s and 1880s uh, and produced some of the most influential initial photographs of places like what is now Yellowstone National Park and the Colorado Rockies, some of which helped make Yellowstone a national park. In my own past, uh, I went through a Rocky Mountain stage, and so William Henry Jackson was very important to me 30-odd years ago. And here he is in the streets of New Orleans in 1890. And this one photograph in particular you found very intriguing. Tell me about that picture. He arrived in November of 1890 and shot a number of um, unposed kind of workaday street scenes on the levees, French Quarter streetscapes, uh, and most of them are readily identifiable. There was one that has long intrigued me, in part because it's just a, such a poignant and beautiful photo, and in part because I was puzzled as to its locations. And I'm, I'm pretty good about locations in this city. Um, it was taken in the middle of a street in the French Quarter, looking up at a two-story building uh, with some people on the sidewalk. That's it. The building is particularly beautiful. It could be anywhere from in the port city from the Caribbean to the Mediterranean, rather gritty and rustic aging, probably late 1700s. It's got a double pitch hip roof, a wooden balcony uh, with wrought iron uh, brackets, um, peeling paint brick facade. The sidewalk is a herringbone brick pattern. There are Belgian paving stones in the street. And what's particularly intriguing about it is that there are five individuals pictured Three children playing barefooted in the puddles, uh, a peddler walking stridently down the street dressed in wraps and a tignon, uh, and then what you might describe as a flaneur kind of leaning against uh, the wall of an institutional-looking building on the right. Their eyes do not meet. Each one is in their own world. And I was able to date this to 1890, and, you know, you ponder the lives of these folks there. The peddler, who appears to be African-American, might have been born a slave. So the children look to be ages four or five, some of which may have lived to see a man on the moon. And here they are in this one little moment being captured by this already famous Western photographer, uh, and the people there are completely oblivious to him. And I wanted to solve where was this location. Tell me about the first clues that you used to try and determine the location of the photo. Well, for one, uh, the photo is labeled as um, Street in French Quarter, New Orleans. That's it. That term, French Quarter, was rather loose at that time. It didn't necessarily mean the exact boundaries. It could have been in Treme and Marigny as well. But looking at the architecture, the building really struck my eye as being late Spanish colonial, those Faubourgs were not yet developed in the 1790s. So that led me to the French Quarter. It looked from the grittiness of the image that this was not in the more commercial, bustling upper half of the quarter. It was probably in the lower half. The fact that there were kids in the streets and a peddler, what does a peddler do? They sell from door to door to homemakers. Families, that was lower quarter. Um, then I looked at the sun angles. If you look at the, the shadows cast by one of the children and the balconies, you have the sun mostly in, in the southern sky, midday, um, and that determined that it was going to be either a lakeside or a downriver side of the street. Then I came across a very, very high-resolution digital copy of the photo, zoomed in, and alas, found what appeared to be 
uh, a house number on one, this little wooden frame by an alleyway, and it was 67. Um, so clearly it's not to our new post-1894 decimal system of addresses with the 100 incrementing for every block. So this is narrowing it down. There were no streetcar tracks. Most of the streetcars ran parallel to the river. That made this one more likely to be perpendicular. So I got out a number of old maps, the Sanborn maps and the Robinson maps, and looked for all the odd-numbered 60s that aligned with all the other clues. And that narrowed it down to a couple uh, but only in one did the footprints of the building match, and that nailed it. It's 727 St. Philip Street. All the buildings are gone now. It is now the McDonough 15 school. Uh, and so that is what made it so difficult to, to identify. You have an interesting juxtaposition of the old photo and the same location as it is now with your son in front of the building. And to any eye, it looks completely different. And you had some lovely things to say at the end of your article about the significance of the school being there. Well, for one thing, the school that used to be there was called St. Philip's Boys School. And during uh, Reconstruction, there was an attempt to integrate it, and that was resisted. And eventually, it was, it was a white-only school. So from having seen those impoverished children playing in the street there, barefoot in some, you know, pretty pretty gritty conditions. It's uplifting in a way to see this uh, the school there is the Homer Plessy Community School now, um, and that it is the one spot where there is still a the last schoolhouse, traditional schoolhouse uh, in the French Quarter. Um, and uh, you know, sometimes I ponder that someday we'll be poring over digital photos that we take today of a place like that, and wondering what New Orleans lives those children um, might have had way back in 2018. And that's it for this very last edition of All Things New Orleans with me, Janae Pierre. We're here to interrupt the show, Janae, because we, we got to break the news that it's your it's your last show. You're moving on to Birmingham, WBHM. We will miss you a lot. So much. We'll miss Jillian Gentilly and 504, <laughs> 504 and the 504. Now, what are you going to say? You can't say 504 and the 204. No, and it's the 205, and it just doesn't work out. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening to All Things New Orleans for my tenure here. I hope you caught a groove while also enjoying some of the great stories from the city and all the great events that happen in and around this place that I call home. So I'm really going to miss it. All right. Well, we'll miss you, Janae. I'm going to miss you guys, too. Okay. One thing that I'm going to miss about Janae is that, um, Janae, you had an uncanny ability to find things around the (laughs) station. I don't know how you did it. You just like, hey, you need like a ruler? I gotcha. You're also such a good storyteller, and you have such great facial expressions that I'm just going to miss laughing my butt off two cubicles away. (laughs) We've gotten so close. Uh, But also, speaking of Travis's storytelling, especially on Mondays when you would come in, and every weekend it would be like, y'all, that was my last weekend acting a fool. And then the next Monday it would be like, y'all, that was my last weekend. 
act in a pool. <laughs> so today really is the first day of the rest of your life today. And uh, we're rooting for you out there. Don't act a pool. Thank you. Um, this, is, this is Jess Clark. I sit next to you and I'm going to miss you. And I'm going to miss peeking around the cubicle and seeing you. You know, whether it's like decorating the office um, for Christmas or Mardi Gras or escaping to the lake for daiquiris. Ooh! <laughs> or, um, yeah, you just channel this like childlike spirit and wonder with everything you do. And it's really special to work with you and I'm going to miss you a lot. We love you, Janae. And love you guys too. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure working with such a great staff.